Good morning. Oh, happy new year. Happy new year. We are in a wonderful book that we're going to be teaching through all the way up through Easter. And uh, this is a good, good, good season in uh, Sunday services. So um, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here. If I have not met you yet, I sure would love to. I'll be right down here afterwards. And um, and if you're new, yeah, we want to welcome you. And um, you do not feel like if you just jumped into today that you're uh, missing out on what the series is. We're actually just kind of getting things warmed up in the study of the book of Luke. So um, let's pray and then we'll get started. Uh, God, we thank you so much for your love, your mercy. God, thank you for what we just proclaimed in this song and that your name is powerful and nothing can stand against it. And God, we sometimes can forget how powerful the name of Jesus is, how important the work of Christ and how much of an advocate we have in our life, God. But help us today as we read your scripture, God, that we read and see that this is the moment that Luke chooses to show that freedom is proclaimed, God, that people who are captive are let free and God, that people who are oppressed are relieved. And God, I thank you that today as we study this passage, as we look at it, God, that each one of us may think, yeah, we've seen this, we've heard this, we've read this, maybe. But God, I ask like you do what you do through the Spirit, which is show us a part of Scripture in our life right now, in our context in our situation, God, that brings hope and life and shows us a new way of seeing this passage. So God, I ask that not one person leave the same without a anthem of hope and an anthem of freedom and God and of oppression being broken and God, those who are poor and poor in spirit, God, find life. And so God, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you were a athlete, I say that because my wife's not here to keep me accountable. Um, if you were an athlete in school, uh, there, there are some strengths that you had and then there's some weaknesses. When I was growing up, I went to a, a, a private Christian school, uh, my wife was cheerleading for me, which was great, in basketball. After our games, if we lost, she'd be like, what's wrong? And I'm like, we just lost. She's like, we lost? I'm like, you're cheerleading for us. So that's kind of how much she paid attention to what we were doing. And as a student athlete, I was very much less a student and more of an athlete. I, if you can relate to me, I excelled at PE. I had straight A's, loved PE. It was the best. Everything else, eh. uh, but history was one of those subjects I absolutely loved. I always got straight A's in, in history. I never really had to try. I just loved it. It just caught my attention. I don't know if anybody's like that. It just fascinates me, the, 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 um, all the stories and all the, 
generations and all the work that we have historically. And so I just really thrived that way. I loved these eras of the Egyptian Empire, the Roman Empire, all the way through the medieval times, and then I became a very huge fan of just the studying of World War II. I love famous historians. Uh, you have some that captured, who were considered maybe the father of history, uh, Herodotus, and he was one who thoroughly documented the uh, Greco-Persian Wars in the 5th century BC, and then you have Julius Caesar, who wrote history according to Julius Caesar, but still he was quite accurate in a lot of things, and then you have Josephus, who, if you do not know who he is, he was a famous Jewish historian, general in the fight against the siege of Jerusalem, lost, ended up writing for Rome, essentially, the histories of the Jewish people. Uh, they would consider him their greatest historian. But then you look throughout history and you see all these eras and you see these great empires and you see all these great historians and we read these accounts and we're really blown away by it. Whole docu-series are done by these historians, whole podcasts are done just to give detail to one part of this historian's work. And then you look at probably which we're going to read today, maybe I would consider the greatest historian for a reason, which would be Luke, or the book at least accredited to Luke. Luke was one of these uh, very thorough historical writers. But Luke was writing, when you read the book of Luke, you have to remember that Luke is writing historically, but that is not his main thrust. It's theologically as well. And so he's a theological, historical writer. So this is why it isn't just matter-of-fact all the way through. He is sourcing things. He is investigating things, which we'll read in a second. But he would be, I would consider, the greatest historian because of who he documented. Julius Caesar was wonderful, right? Ramses was great. But there's no one documented that was more important than who Luke is documenting. You can say, and I've heard this said over and over when I look at history, it'd be like this one leader changed the course of the history of the world. But then when you look at it, you see that it actually didn't change the course of the history of the world. It may have changed the course of a region or that we've come up with some uh, a, a direction, even in, in democracy. But there is one historical figure that changed the history of the world, no doubt. I say all that because I think when we read these narratives of the Gospels, we can't just take for granted and go, well, that's Jesus. And, um, and we're reading these nice stories about Jesus. This was a history changer. This was a history maker. Luke took it upon himself guided by the Spirit to document the greatest figure in the history of the world. So I consider Luke the greatest historian. When you read the book of Luke, and if you want to, we're going to start in this section in Luke, and you can open your Bibles or your app and however you read, but it'd be good to read through as we go. So today will be chapter 4. 
I'll have it on the screen, but it's good to note and mark down, and you can go back, and, and you can maybe have God is putting an impression on your heart that you can go back and read that verse again when you were having that during the service. Luke wrote two volumes in, in the New Testament, but the, the, what people don't realize is this is one quarter of the entire New Testament as far as its size. When you wrote in ancient days, just to know, you would write on a scroll, and, and, and he wrote so prolifically. He wrote so detailed. If you look at the book of Mark and the book of Luke, it, 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 Mark pales in comparison to the size, the magnitude, the description, the detail, and the investigation of Luke. When you had a scroll, they would roll them out, these scrolls, and they would write and you would roll and scroll to a certain spot, but if you unrolled the entire thing, then it would be probably 30 to 35 feet long of a scroll. Luke is the only one in the New Testament that filled an entire scroll with just his gospel, and then filled another entire scroll of the book of Acts. Luke and Acts are like part one, part two. Um, when you read Luke, they are meant Acts and Luke to be paired together because they are an account of the things that have happened. And to who he is writing to, he wants to make sure they know this account and ultimately it becomes our, our gospel. Luke was written in this massive size, 9,800 words, I believe, and then Acts is 19,000. Acts is like 18,000 words, and it becomes this massive body of work. I think what I'm trying to hopefully do is increase your appreciation for the work and the details. So when we read Luke, we should slow down and really look at what he's trying to write. Um, he wrote it around the year 69 AD is what they think, uh, because there's no mention of the fall of Jerusalem. And so they think that as a historian, if this would have been something he would have put in, so they think that it was around that time. Luke is, is writing to a specific person who will read, and he's writing to this person to sure up the, the words that they have heard because they didn't have the Bible like we have. They, they had people preaching. They had the power of the Spirit, but they had nothing to read and, and reference back to and to, uh, to see in this investigation of Luke who Jesus was by all accounts. So he is at this place where he is now thoroughly documenting for the purpose of discipleship and instruction, the book of Acts. You know, he wrote it, Luke is a Greek, he was not a, a, a Jew, and so he was writing to a Greek-speaking uh, and um, uh, non-Jewish non listener. And so this book then begins to become circulated amongst the people in the community. He wrote this book probably from the city of Antioch, which is the third largest city in the history of, uh, of the Roman Empire. And so it was very influential. It was very big. The city of Antioch was the launching city and the base for Paul and all of his works and ministry. And his intent, if you want to read the book of Luke for what it's worth, his intent is to communicate that salvation is here. And he's writing to people who are citizens of Rome. And to them, all their emperors have said, salvation is here. 
because I'm the emperor. And they almost deified themselves in a way some did. And he's writing to those who would seemingly have salvation, and he's saying salvation has actually arrived in this small, little, remote place that Romans don't even think about in Jerusalem. It was a small province. It wasn't even worth to, to, to the emperor to really send a whole legion there. It, it wasn't worth even protecting that much. But it came from there. And, you know, the thing about Luke is we have to realize is Luke is someone who, when, when he is writing this, he is, remember, he is a companion of Paul's. So he's mentioned multiple times throughout works of Paul. He is traveling with Paul. He is talking with Barnabas. He is talking with Silas. He is talking to the disciples. He is talking with Paul. So he is inundated in everything that he has seen and had heard from actual accounts. I would say when you read the book of Luke, this is like an investigative journalist. He is writing a full-bodied piece that for his readers to fully comprehend what has taken place and why they see this movement beginning to move. Luke chapter 1, let's read it. This is where it starts, and we'll jump to chapter 4 in a minute. But he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, meaning others have, beginning, have begun to document the, the work of Christ. They're compiling a narrative, right? So remember, narrative. This is what Luke is beginning to do in his story. Of the things that have been accomplished among us. So Luke has been there, right? And just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers, no doubt talking about the disciples, of the word that have been delivered, uh, delivered them to us. It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely from the time, uh, from, from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is. He is called most excellent because he is most likely someone high up in the Roman ranks. I've heard some scholars say that this may be Luke writing basically a testimony on behalf of Paul while he's in trial of Rome, and Theophilus could be someone representing Paul on his behalf who has come to know the truth. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's the case, but I know that he is ministering or reaching to Theophilus, and he is trying to give him an account. And it says in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And I think that word certainty is key. I don't know where Theophilus is. I don't know where Theophilus is, is in his heart. I don't know where you are. But then there's a point of which Luke is saying, I want you to have this body of work for your cert so you certainly in your certainty that you can believe what you've been taught, that you can understand what you've been taught and what a gift it was uh, to all of us and to them then. Um, let's jump to Luke chapter 4 and then in verse 16. This, this is, I'm going to skip a few parts and we're going to come back because you've got to read, uh, starting with verse 16. Now, this is where we're going to see, jump right into it. I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll come through, and we'll just kind of take a look at a few different things. In verse 16, and, and he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. 
and was his, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue, the place where they worshipped, like this church here, and on the Sabbath day, which would be their holy day, and, and he stood up and he read. And he says, And the scroll that the prophet Isaiah was given of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We'll jump in and explain a lot of this. But let's keep reading verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. And then he sat down. And then he goes on to say this. That he, and the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your presence, in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you will, you will quote to me a proverb, physician, heal yourself. What have, you, uh, what have we heard you did in Capernaum? Do hear in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, Jesus is saying this, say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But I tell you the truth, but, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now he's referencing something in Kings. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. To a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in, in Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Nahum in Syria. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. They rose up, they drove him out of the town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. He walked away. Now, this is a sermon that's gone bad. <laughs> if you read the progression of this sermon, this is all wonderful. It's great. And then all of a sudden, it takes a really, really bad turn. And I think about, like, when, when I think about who's sitting here and who's listening, I think about Jesus' mom and his brothers or sisters his family, his teacher, all these people are here. I remember Chad telling me that when he came up and he spoke at Soundhouse, he's looking out and he's seeing his parents and he's seeing his family. He's seeing people who changed his diaper when he was a baby. And he was telling me, like, it's weird, and now I'm teaching them. Like, so he is in this situation where his whole family is there. His mom is like, this is my baby, baby Jesus. He is here. And he is preaching, and he, she is a proud mother. I'm sure this is what's happening. Everyone's listening, everyone's waiting, and then it takes a turn. And next thing you know, they're trying to kill her son for what he says in, in the synagogue. And when we look at it and we go, 
what happened here? If you ever read scripture, sometimes you might go, why, why, why did this go south so quickly? And what can I learn from this passage in this section? Uh, we have to go back up to the beginning of chapter 4, though, so we'll go back there and kind of lay the groundwork. I'll never forget when I first took a job, my very first job when I got out of uh, a Bible college, I went home and I was interviewing and I spoke in the youth ministry and then they wanted me to speak on a Wednesday night uh, to the adults. And I was young and my parents were there, my family was there, everyone was there. I couldn't sleep the entire night. I was so nervous. I got up there, I spoke, I, I, I did a terrible job. I did a horrible job. I spoke to adults like they were seventh graders. And, 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 and maybe, maybe that's good. I don't know. But I was using language they didn't know. I was, I was speaking in a way that they didn't really fully grab. And I remember my mom just sitting there. I looked at my mom. And you can always tell with your family members how bad you're doing. You know what I mean? When they're just like, oh, no. And my mom is doing this. And I know it was a bad moment for her. She wouldn't say that. She would say she was so proud of me. But I knew I was bombing. And I still got the job, so it was great. And <laughs> I don't know how I made it. I, I, I know the feeling. I can imagine the intensity. I can imagine the difficulty of what's happening in this story. But you have to understand why this story happened. This is his family. Why wouldn't they support him? I never saw Chad speak and his parents afterwards try to s throw him over a cliff. You know, I, I, I never saw people, his family members and friends, get up and walk out and then, or yell out like, blasphemy! Like, I never saw that yet. We go back, though, to the beginning of the chapter, and I taught this of several weeks ago, of uh, Jesus encountering the temptations in the desert. The temptations in the desert is a fantastic example for us as believers to walk in power and authority over an enemy that has been conquered by Christ, by watching Christ do it himself. And so if you read those stories, which we won't today, you will see Jesus' interaction with the devil. And the devil is, one, challenging him on his identity. And if you don't think that that's not a challenge for every single believer, that's exactly how you will be challenged in your identity in Christ, who you are to God and who God is to you. Your citizenship, your adoption, your uh, namesake now, that's what will be challenged to you. The second thing that he challenges Jesus on is use your religion, your religious powers, if you will, to make something happen. Abuse it, essentially, is what he's being challenged on. Are you able to do what you've been empowered to do? And the third thing is, ultimately, trade faithfulness for success. I know God is saying, be faithful, but he, how about I give it to you now? We know this, that anything that comes quickly is not real success. Everybody knows who works hard, that it comes slow, that it takes time, you have to have faith. But the, the devil is offering him an opportunity to have everything that you would think he, Jesus would want. Now, dominion, power, authority but not being faithful. So Jesus shows us exactly how to combat the enemy. And however the enemy attacks you, spiritual warfare, 
Um, I am not one to ever say that there's no spiritual warfare. We clearly see it in the book of Luke in his historical accounting, but theological accounting as well. You have experienced it in your own life in some way, whether it's through thoughts you just can't get rid of, and a shame you can't remove. Or we, we, can, we can kind of like reason out all the reasons that the spiritual warfare isn't happening, but I will just tell you that there's, there, there's just overwhelming evidence and proof that there is spiritual warfare, and Jesus shows us how to combat that. But listen to what happens here. This is why everyone gets so upset what Jesus does. And this is why Jesus even says these words to them, where I'm like, Jesus, you had everybody in the palm of your hand. Why are you making everybody mad? This is why. Verse 14. Jesus returned, this is before he gets there, to preach this message. But before he gets there, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, and, uh, of the Spirit to Galilee after he had beat the temptations of the devil. He has just been empowered by the Spirit at baptism. And he's in this power of the Spirit in Galilee. And reports of him went all throughout the surrounding county or country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So this is how Luke orders things. Mark does not order things this way. But Luke chooses to order things this way for a specific reason. He's cutting right to the chase, to the main point. Now, Jesus didn't just become de defeat the devil in the desert and then walk right up to Nazareth. He probably spent a year, most people believe, in the area and region teaching. He doesn't go home. He's teaching. People are listening. People are being changed. News spreads everywhere. His hometown of Nazareth is like, when is he coming back? Like, this is our boy. I taught Jesus how to saw. <laughs> I taught him how to read the Torah. Why wouldn't he come here? So there's a lot of expectation on Jesus when he returns. And then... So we see that he's been around, but he hasn't been here. But then he finally comes. And let's go through Luke 16 a little more slow. And he came to Nazareth, in verse 16, Don, when he had, uh, where he had been brought up. This is where everybody knows him. He's familiar. As you have gotten older, have you not noticed how difficult it is to sometimes give your parents wisdom thoughts? Sometimes I'll tell my mom something, and God bless her, she's listening right now, and I'm going to get a phone call about this, mom, I know. But sometimes I'll try to be like, and you know, and she's like, Ryan, I know that. And I'm like, but, I, but you know, and it's, 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 she knows me too well. When I went up and I spoke in front of that crowd on that Wednesday night, I was looking at people who were my teachers, and I was looking at people who had a lot of dirt on me from my previous life. People who were looking at me just shaking their heads, like, how are you up here? We know a lot about you. I had friends of mine. So Jesus is here. These are the people he's brought up with. And two, it was his custom that he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up and he read. It was this custom, not of Jesus' necessarily, but it was a custom of a rabbi. Every synagogue he went in, he was invited as a special reader. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, we don't know if he picked this or not. Typically, in a synagogue service like ours, we do, what do we do here? We do worship. We do announcements, except for today, Chad. 
Then we do the sermon. Then we do a closing song of worship. And then we do a closing out. And then we say goodbye. They have a very similar format. It's just a little different. Theirs is read from the Torah, the law. Then it was read from one of the prophets. And then it was read one of the psalms or sing one of the hymns. And then it was a, a, an encouragement as they went. A benediction. And so Jesus was going to read the part of the prophet. So this is why he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it is written. And everybody there has heard everything going on. Now remember, they've been waiting for a Messiah there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Listen, when I tell my, when I tell my kids that I'm going to do something, they never let it go. Ever let it go. I have something I'm dealing with my youngest son right now, and he will come down and be like, hey, like, I, I, was, I, I was not feeling well the last week. And he would come down and be like, hey, Dad, um, <clears throat> that thing you said, are we going to do that? And I'm like, <coughs> I can't do anything. He'd come down again, and he'd come down again, and he'd come down again, and he'd get in my face, and he'd wake me up, and he'd be like, Dad, when are we doing that? I'm like, I'm dying, right? You know, so. He, he just wouldn't stop. Now, these people have been waiting for a Messiah. And the more the pressure of this oppressive regime and the way they've been kicked down and kicked throughout history, they're waiting. So hundreds of years they've read this part that Jesus is going to read. And I think we can relate to this because there's a lot of us in here who've been waiting. And maybe waiting, unfortunately, for something that's already come. Waiting for something that's arrived. And they're about ready to miss something that's already arrived. And they don't see it. And I think we can relate to this. Because there are times when we go, where are you, God? Where are you, God? And God's like, I'm here. You have to lean into me and trust. But they're saying, this is it. This is the prophecy. It's the Messiah prophecy. Is this him? Could this be him? I, I changed his diapers. You know I mean, like, people can't put their head around it, but listen to what he says, and this is why this is the most important, I believe, of the beginning of the book of Luke, why he sets us off in this direction, why he wants to put this as the highlight here is the reading of Isaiah, and this ultimately becomes the mission of the Messiah. This is the mission statement of the Messiah. This has been prophesied. Isaiah in chapter 61 is where this comes from, but in chapters 53, 52, we hear about the Messiah is going to die or the Messiah is going to be a sacrifice for all sin. We hear about the job description of the Messiah, but then here is where he reads the mission of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He was just at baptism. I've been anointed. I've been chosen, set apart. And here we go, to proclaim, or really the word could be used to preach, good news to the poor. And that could be poor physically, and that could be poor spiritually, but ultimately it's all poor spiritually, because not all are poor physically. And he is called to preach the good news, or we would say the gospel, to all those who are poor. Did you know that every one of you were poor in spirit? We know that he's speaking to those to a general condition, which is poor in spirit. But it doesn't stop us from knowing that Christ comes that 
we don't live in a life of impoverishment, that God doesn't want that either. But we're mostly going to know that he's speaking spiritually because that puts us all in the same boat. When we take communion down here, this is one of the things Chad and I talk about all the time. We love it because everybody from all walks of life, it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, your status in life, high, low, medium, whatever, your story, your background, your sins, everyone comes to take communion to say, I'm nothing without the cross. It's an equalizer. All poor are poor and all in need. I was sharing with our men's group yesterday. One of the best things was is a pastor brought me around uh, when I just became a Christian. He picked me out and he said, let's go to hospitals and let's visit sick people. It's just what every young 20 guy wants to do. I couldn't wait. And he said, put on a suit. We're going to the hospital room. And we spent hours and hours going from room to room. And what I learned right there was that it doesn't matter who you are when you're in a place of no hope, a place of, 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 of absolutely des absolute despair, everybody is in the same place, broken and in need of a Savior. Many people were not believers, but holding hands in prayer because they're broken spiritually. I learned a valuable lesson that, that day that it doesn't matter who you are, I will stand with the gospel before anybody and because all are poor in spirit. And he goes on to say this, he has sent me to proclaim liberty or release of the captives. So if we hear his mission statement, poor in spirit, I've come to make rich. Those who are captive to sin, or the sinful woman as who would be a prostitute, the outcast of society to Paul, who would be the most elite intellectually and most pious religious person, both poor. And it goes on and it goes on, and you can just go list the whole people through. The rich young ruler, poor. And Jesus says, there's something that you miss, and there's something that you do not have. So when you go through all of these, you see, man, he came to bring the captives free and recover the sight to the blind, meaning that those who were once in darkness, and I would say all of us in this room were in darkness, and we saw a great light. And we finally saw, think about how your world perspective has changed, because now you see. You live your life differently. Thank God, we do. You were once blind, but now you've recovered. The wool of the world was pulled over your eyes, and now it is no longer there. And he says, to set at liberty or release those who are oppressed, afflicted, shamed, bound, beat down, marginalized. So listen to the mission of the Messiah. This is his mission statement. And he announces it at his hometown. And then verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. This is in Leviticus 25 in the Old Testament. It was every 50 years the land was given rest. Every 50 years, if you were in debt, you were wiped clean. If you had land that you were dispossessed of, you were given the land back. Freedom was given to anyone who was a, a, an indentured servant and they were free and they could start over. And Jesus says, I proclaim the year of the Lord's favor of Jubilee. There is now freedom here. 
Sin has been wiped away. Your debt has been clear. This is the mission of the Messiah. There are 2,000 prophecies in the Bible, and Jesus reads this one for a reason. About the 2,000 prophecies of the Messiah. But he's coming in power, authority, gospel, freedom, light, release, and forgiveness. That's the mission of the Messiah. If you have not experienced that, you're not experiencing the mission of the Messiah. He came here to do that for every single one of us. So listen to this. He rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Now, it wasn't like this. I think I always read this, and I pictured Jesus would read the scroll, and he'd be like, okay, that's enough. I'm going to sit down, and we're just going to sit here. Like, that's not what he did. Everybody in the synagogue sat on the ground. They didn't sit in chairs, and then he sat in a chair. And so he then begins to teach and interpret that passage as a rabbi would. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This, by the way, in the Bible, is the shortest sermon in the Bible. <laughs> it is. If you look at the length of all sermons in the Bible, this is the shortest one. He makes this one proclamation. He says, today, you're a witness that this has happened. But what happens is people begin to doubt. And this is what most scholars believe. And I actually, as I read it, I feel the same way. They're going, isn't this Joseph's son? We know this guy. We're familiar with this. It's like when you go to witness to somebody and your life's changed and they're like, but I, I know you and I need to hear it from somebody else. Right? They're too familiar with him. They don't believe. They, 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 he picks up on something here because of his response. And I don't believe Luke put this in here just because Jesus was having a bad day or he felt like he bombed in his sermon so he starts yelling at everybody. There's There's doubt. And then they begin to maybe wonder, we need to see some proof of this. Verse 23, doubtless you will quote me in this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Meaning this, that you did it in there in Galilee and those regions. Come do it here. Let's see if you can do it here. He says, what we have heard in Capernaum, do it in your hometown as well then. Now this is very familiar to the temptation that was happening in the desert. And he's being challenged, like, if you can do it, just show us a sign. Then we'll believe. And I think this is a challenge to us. It's like, I'll see and then I'll believe. And that's not faith. Faith is believing and hoping that eventually you will see. And so they have it wrong. Let's see who you really are, Jesus. And then verse 24, he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, he is ultimately, in the moment right now, going to quote two things, and I won't read them for time's sake. He is going to say, in the Old Testament, there was a famine, and there was this widow. But this widow, she was not one of you. She was an outsider. And then also, there was all these lepers, and God didn't come to any of them to bring healing, but there was this one, and he was also an outsider. And this is what made them mad. You've done this everywhere else. You're not showing us a sign. We need proof and then have faith. And now you're saying that you're not for us, this hometown boy. We should be putting a sign up, home of Jesus, Nazareth, welcome. Like, you're our guy, but you're going everywhere else. And this is the mission of Christ. 
is that it's not just for any to hold him there. He's to go to the entire world. Luke is making very clear, especially to his Gentile audience, that Jesus has come not just for those in Israel, but for the world. And they brought him out, and they wanted to throw him out, and they wanted to kill him. Now, what happens next is really interesting because you'll see the manifestation of this calling, this mission statement. You'll see the manifestation in three acts. One, you're going to see a demoniac who is someone who's sitting in church, and they're not like a kid being disruptive in service. He is having a real hard time, and Jesus casts the demon out with his words. And so people don't know what to do. They're freaking out. And the demon's actually saying, you're Jesus. But the problem is, is no one else is recognizing he's the Christ, but the demons are, and that's a problem. So Jesus tells them to shut up because he doesn't want his brand, if you will, to be represented by demons. Right? This is not good. He wants people to. That's why he honors Peter so much when he does it. So he is dealing with this demon. He casts him out, and, and the man is whole. He was oppressed. He was enslaved, but he's free. And then it's Peter's mother-in-law is next, where Peter says, hey, my mom's got like a high fever. Now, we don't know, because it, he does the exact same thing to the demon with a word that he does with Peter's mother-in-law. He uses a word. And he's standing over her, which would be a position of authority, and he speaks to her to cast this fever out. Now, some would say that D Peter's mother-in-law is demon-possessed. And maybe, I don't know, some mother-in-laws are demon-possessed. <laughs> Jesus speaks to them. He speaks, he speaks to her, and she's free with a word, right? And then the next one is uh, more demons are, 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 are manifesting, and he's speaking to them, but then he begins to lay hands on people to help them recover. Now, in the Old Testament, you laid hands for blessing. This is the only time it starts to happen is where healing comes by the laying of hands. So why you see Jesus do this is this is a new era of laying on of hands not just blessing, healing. And what happens is at sundown, people start bringing everyone there because it's Sabbath. They can't break the law of the Sabbath by carrying their lame friend to Jesus, but he begins to heal them all, the Bible says. His ministry starts, and it starts with those who are disenfranchised, those who are poor in spirit, those who are broken, those who are, who are enslaved to sin, and those who are absolutely bound and oppressed are all receiving freedom the year of Jubilee. So we see not only in his mission and his calling, but we see it manifest in his work. Why do you see Jesus do so many miracles? They're a manifestation of his teaching, a, a parable, if you will, of his teaching, of what we receive as well. Now these, I believe, are historical accounts because I believe that Luke is not only theological, but he is historical. And we'll finish with this last verse. So remember, everybody wants to keep Jesus for themselves. And it closes out the book with what we can never do with the gospel. We can never do with the good news. We want to keep the secret to ourselves. I can't tell you how long it took me to figure out what the secret sauce was in and out. And then I realized, I think this is Thousand Island dressing with sugar in it. And then I figured it out. But the secret sauce was so guarded and so protected. And people said, I don't know, it's special. I'm like, you know this is Thousand Island. Let's not lie. But the thing is, is that this secret, this, this thing, this 
this special manifestation, something that was very big for their region. They didn't want it to leave. And he's saying, I'm going to actually go beyond even our nation, the world. They couldn't see his global mission of the Messiah. They only saw the Messiah as for them in the way they wanted to see it. And so even Peter, even Peter is freaking out because Jesus is kind of always on mission. You can't stop him. He slips out of the crowd. He's trying to kill him. He's always walking somewhere. They're always chasing him down. Anybody like this? Feel like this? No one will leave him alone. He's trying to get away privately. And it says in verse 42 to finish out the chapter, and when it was the day, he departed and he went to a desolate place. Usually that's how Jesus would recharge, if you will, or commune with the Father. And the people sought him out, and they came to him, and, they, and, and uh, would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of heaven to the other towns as well. And then here's his statement, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues in Judea. I have to go. In the same way, no one really fully recognized the mission statement of Christ, that he came to bring freedom to the oppressed. Now, the good news is, is that this is his mission. In your life, if you're experiencing oppression, depression, if you're experiencing, it almost feels like an otherworldly assault on your life, and I can't even begin to try to explain the spiritual world. But if you feel like oppression and heaviness, a difficulty, a struggle, it almost feels like one step forward, 20 steps back, Christ has come for you. If you feel that you've been enslaved and bound to something in your life that you cannot break free from. And we know what that feels like. It's like somebody somebody who, like, and I'm not pointing anything out here. I'm just saying the example would be somebody who can't stop gossiping. And they're bound to it. It's like, or or saying something negative about something where it's like, do you know anybody like this? Where it's like, well, yeah, but did you also notice blah, blah, blah? And you're like, oh, my gosh. There's not even a glass half empty. This is fully empty. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's habitual. You're bound to it. You're enslaved to it. It just manifests. And Christ said, I've come to bring freedom to those who are enslaved. Not only enslaved to sin, but enslaved and bondage in any part of your life. And I've come to bring freedom and riches to the poor. No matter how, what status we are in life or position, you're still poor spiritually, but you're only made rich through Christ. The most, this was the best announcement the world ever heard. When you read Luke, this is the best announcement, the best sermon, even though it was the shortest, the world has ever heard. And those people couldn't see it in front of them. I pray we do not miss that. I pray that you walk out and you go, I won't miss that announcement for my life. I will be like those people in the region that that are willing to carry a friend to Christ because there's something special. I will be one of those people that hears it and glorifies him for all. 
I want to be one of those people. I want to be like Peter when I, I, I finally realize this is the Christ. I want to express it. That's, my, I think, my prayer for our church today is that we don't miss the message of the Messiah, the mission of the Messiah in our own life. Studying the Bible is awesome. I love it. I, I, I could do it all day long and sometimes do. But I'll tell you what, if we study it and we miss it, then we're missing it. I pray the Spirit here gets a hold of your heart and you walk out and go, listen, that message and mission of the Messiah is for me. And I'm also to go like Jesus and not keep it here and not keep it in my house and not keep it in just my church, but to go. Even though there are a lot of reasons that I'll be pulled not to, but I'm called to go and continue that same mission Christ led back then. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, the diligence in the work of, uh, of Luke as he documented, worked, researched, and spirit-led to give us one of the, I think, one of my favorite gospels. And God, I thank you that as we read through Luke, I ask that we don't just read scripture, God, that we are inspired by the spirit of whom wrote it and guided it and directed it. And God, I ask that every single service, every single Sunday, we don't walk out seeing Scripture the same way in our life, but we see it unique, afresh, new. And God, I pray that every person that walks out remembers the mission of the Messiah and remembering that we follow Christ in that mission and the power of His name, that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord and we can walk in the very same confidence that Christ walked in, that we carry the mission statement of the Messiah. For your glory, for your work, and God, let it manifest in our own lives, and let God help us see it in others. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and sing this last song?